Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Robin C. was recorded on September 16th, 2021. I saw on a show recently someone very famous saying, becoming whole does not have a destination. You don't arrive and then stop developing. And I'm grateful that I'm remaining open to continuing to develop because as I get older and the years pile on after being exposed to or entering 12-step meetings in 1984, that's 30, almost 37 years ago, I've continued to need development. Um, I continue to learn what the vast well deep well of areas I have in my soul and in my body and in my heart and in my mind that continue to need healing and that need further attention. So I'm glad to be reminded that we don't arrive and stop developing. It's a continuous journey. Um, I got sober in AA at the age of 30. Uh, and then at age 64, about three years ago, a woman I was sponsoring, um, at the time I was living in a, in a little town in Mexico, San Miguel de Allende, and they had a, a good AA group going there. And I was sponsoring a woman and she asked me to join her at an ACA meeting. And I heard what I now know is my critical parent talking to me, trying to say, oh, Robin, you're just, you're just too old for another 12-step group, you know, you, you have your group, that's fine. But I'm so grateful I listened to my inner child who said, I don't know, let's go, it might be fun. And actually I was being of service to a woman I sponsor. So it is here I have found so many answers and so many new peaceful ways to live. Even my normally... Um, non-observant husband said the other day, you know, Robin, you're much nicer than you were before you joined ACA. I don't know if that's not a compliment or not, but I'll take it either way. Um, anyway, I, you know, I, I've heard it said in ACA, and it's very true for me, in AA, you learn how to give up the, or put down the drink, in ACA, you learn how to put down the bat. And for years, you know, I had languished in OA and, you know, I'd sponsored people and I did the steps and I did workshops and I had potlucks at my house, but I was just kind of coasting. In all reality, I wasn't doing the work. And um, I was uh, very much in need, shall we say, of this program when through my sponsee, I found ACA two and a half years ago and through ACA, through ACA, I found another sponsor who was with me thick and thin. I've worked the 12 steps with her. We're working, we worked the laundry list and the traits book. We are now working, uh, believe it or not, the traditions of Al-Anon. 
because it's showing me more ways to incorporate um, all of these principles in all of my affairs. Um, I found also through the same woman I sponsor, I found the ACA Recovery Sisters group. Through that group, I met I met uh, Dottie, and through and through Dottie is how I came to be sitting in front of you tonight. So um, I got to tell you though, my little disclaimer: if you're looking for a story tonight with all kinds of childhood horror, you're not going to hear it here. Um, there was no physical abuse. My dad didn't beat my mom. There was no incest. I didn't attempt suicide. I suffered a different kind of abuse. And it was one that I became aware of through ACA that I didn't see in other 12-step programs. But first, I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay, I was born into a Mormon family in Salt Lake City, Utah. Up until the age of um, 11, my parents were very heavily involved in the church. My family has a long, long history with the Mormon church. My great-great-grandfather had five wives and 42 kids. My great-grandmother was the only child of his fifth and youngest wife before he passed away. And if polygamy hadn't been legal for the 15 years that it was, um, I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you tonight. I call myself a recovering Mormon, just as some Catholics call themselves recovering Catholics. It is an identifiable term that says I have been emotionally scarred by my religion. And religion, religious abuse does exist, and I'm, you know, and I'm just beginning to have some cohesive thoughts about all of that, and I'm still trying to work my way through my thoughts on that. I do believe addiction is prevalent in our family, and I'm talking about our extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, but it doesn't come out in the traditional venues such as alcohol or drugs. In my family, it came out in food addictions, perfectionism, sort of a light hands-off attitude, which was a kind of love at arm's length kind of parenting. And, a, and a, for my own parents, I always had this slight feeling that they would just rather be somewhere else. And for me, it became a childhood of benign neglect and perfectionism and not feeling safe in my own home. And I'll tell you why I didn't actually feel safe in my own home. Um, at ages four and five, most of my childhood memories come from this two-year period, and it set the, what do I want to say, the parameters for a lot of the way I live my life. And a, a, a lot of the way that I viewed life from what happened at four and five. So the, the first big one for me that came, that was in my um, inventory was um, when I was four, my parents uh, had put us to bed and they were outside at night building a rock wall, building it themselves. It was for a garden they were building. And they had put a light on top of a, a, a pole and put that pole in cement with an inner tube surrounding it. 
It was a makeshift thing. I don't know if they borrowed it. I don't know what. But they had this pole so they could work at night. And they were out in the front yard across the driveway. And for some reason, I woke up and, for, and I decided for whatever reason to put on my mother's high heels. And like four-year-old girls do, we go clunking out in the high heels and saying, look, mom, I'm wearing your high heels. Don't I look pretty? And right then I grabbed the pole to swing on it and show mom my feet with the high heels on, not knowing that the pole was not grounded. And I became electrocuted. And I can remember to this day, dad rushing at me and hitting my arm to break that connection. Now he didn't break my arm, but as a little kid, all I saw was what I just described to you. And I have absolutely no idea why this thing in our front yard felt like it wanted to kill me. And then when that happened, I have no idea why what I got was what I perceived as violence from my father. And I didn't have the words or the ability to say to them what, what I just said to you. All I know was we were all crying. And I can remember being rocked in my mother's lap. And instead of, I don't know, a reparenting parent might say, oh, honey, I'm so glad you're not hurt. Oh, honey, I'm, I, I'm so glad you're here and not any worse. But my mom said, why in the hell would you get up in the middle of the night and put your hand on that pole? Now, as an adult, I understand where she's coming from. As a child of four, I just heard anger and it added on to my feeling of not feeling safe in my own home. Um, I was also a hellion at four. I have learned how to own my stuff. And one, one night my mom and I went to war over green beans. I refused to eat them. And she told me, you're not gonna, um, if you don't finish your green beans, you don't get to go in, into the living room and watch TV and have ice cream with the rest of us. And I said, okay. And I sat there gambling on the fact that she would come in and get me after a certain amount of time and take me into the living room and give me a little dish of ice cream. But she didn't, she left me. And I was there all night and I fell asleep with my face next to my plate. And of course, feeling terribly abandoned. So, you know, as I say this to you, I'm realizing that, you know, a lot of this, I'm setting up myself to be victimized. Um, you know, and there's, there's, there's a, a bunch more stories. Uh, I, <laughs> I stole, I'll tell you one more and then I'll move on. Um, I stole uh, at the age of four, this same year, I stole two candy bars from the local Safeway and I had them in my hand and I was coming home and my brother had a tree house and he had a friend up in his tree house and it was boys only, no girls. And I wanted to go up. So I tried to bribe my brother with letting him, telling him, I will give you one of my candy bars if you let me come up in, the, in your, your tree house. And the first words out of his mouth were, of course, he yelled, mom, Robin has candy bars I know she didn't buy. And I was in mortal trouble. Mom came outside, asked what was going on and grabbed me by the ear and pulled me into the house. So right now I felt betrayal and violence so far. 
she grabbed those candy bars out of my hand and put them way up on top of the refrigerator, which looked like a mountain to me at the time, and said, I have to go to a relief society meeting and you are going to take a nap. And when you get home, I'm taking you back to the Safeway and you're going to make a personal apology to that manager and you're going to pay for the candy out of your own allowance. So I went to nap in mortal terror and the babysitter unbeknownst to her did not know that those candy bars were off limits and she ate one of them. And when I got up and we discovered that she'd eaten one, I thought I was gonna die. I mean, I have no way to return this. And so more terror, more fear around chocolate, the forbidden item. And uh, my mom took me down to the Safeway and I can remember him getting down on that sort of half knee, half crouch, one knee on the ground so that their face can be at my level. And I was hiccuping, crying. I was, stole, stole two candy bars. And I saw his face, I saw him trying not to break into a smile. And I don't know where my little four-year-old brain got sophisticated, but all of a sudden I realized I had him. In the palm of my hand, I knew I was gonna get off. Now what kid thinks of that? But I did. I knew I was gonna get away with it. So all my feelings about food are all wrapped up in all of that. Trying to be secret, trying to hide it, trying to betrayal and violence, all elevating things with sugar in it to a high, high level in my mind. And it's been that way ever since, because that's my mother. My mother is exactly like that. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, all of my life, everyone always compared me to my mom. They said, you're exactly like your mother. I must have heard that at least every week of my life. You look like her, you act like her. So I became her. I am her carbon copy. I am a living DNA replicant of all of her addictions. And it has set up a struggle for life for me to try and break free of her. I still get compared to her in looks to this day. But you know, the growth in me through ACA is now allowing me to accept it as a compliment. So when I was 11, our family moved to California. We left Utah. Parents, my parents immediately left the church and they began drinking and partying, which was very confusing to us, us three kids, older brother, younger sister. And we were only separated. My brother was two and a half years older. My sister's two and a half years younger. When we kids, when us kids would ask mom and dad, why, why are you doing that? You're not supposed to do that in the Mormon church. Well, they said, all they said to us, well, we think we're just done. And then we were left to our own conclusions about that. And from that, I learned that big, that big things could change in a heartbeat without much explanation. When would the other shoe drop? When I would press them on it, to ask them to tell me more, my mother would give me one of her infamous phrases and say, oh, Robin, just drop it. I'm done talking about it. So I learned to accept only what was given to me. Um, we lived on Balboa Island at the age of 11. 
in the mid 60s. Now that Balboa Island is a beach community. It's exactly what it is. It's an island and homes are on the water and we were on the water. And in the mid 60s, everyone was wearing bikinis. Well, girls were wearing bikinis. And I come in from Salt Lake City, Utah, where one piece bathing suits are the norm because they're modesty, they're of modesty. And I was a little pudgy. And I discovered that mom had a poor body image. And at that point I learned to hate my body as well. So now not only am I feeling unsafe in my home, I'm also beginning to learn to hate myself. I began to feel shame over my own body image. Um, there was an incident where I can remember Mom was upset about something. She was stirring dinner. She was making food. And I could tell by the way she was stirring, she was angry. And I asked her what happened. And she said, all I'm going to tell you, Robin, is if you want something done right, you, learn, you do it yourself. Remember that forever. And that grooved right in this little brain. I mean, Mom told me to remember something, so I did. And from that, I extrapolated how to learn to never ask for help. You know, my poor parents did the best they could. They had no idea the messages that were getting grooved into this little brain. They had no idea. And I discovered in ACA, they were passing down what was passed on to them. My mother was an absolute perfectionist. She was a milder version of her own mother who was a raging perfectionist, an extremely formal woman. Never saw that woman without a girdle. Remember girdles? They call them spanks now. And, and a full-on dress. Never saw that woman not dressed like she was going to a party or a business meeting. And she, she was absolute hell. And my mother inherited all of that from her and passed it down to me. I remember when I got straight A's, I was going for straight A's. I wanted straight A's. I saw the praise my older brother got. He wound up being a doctor. He had the brains. And I saw the attention he got when he gets straight A's. So I worked my hiney off to get straight A's in sixth grade, except for that one little stupid little handwriting. Why did they grade us in our handwriting when we were in school? I got a C in handwriting. And I ran home and showed that to mom. I knew mom wouldn't care about it handwriting and I showed her those straight A's and she she looked at it and she said that's nice dear that's what I would expect of my daughter next time why don't you try and get true all A's so I learned perfectionism which to my mom's dying breath she disagreed with me that perfectionism is a bad thing she called it goal setting one of those, it's one of those things where I have to let her be. I have to agree to disagree with her. I have to not try and change her. She's not going to change that. And I have to learn to accept and love her as she is. So I'm going to fast forward through some of this. When we lived on Balboa Island, it was a duplex. And on the other side of the wall of that duplex were the owners of the duplex. And they were older. I mean, I was 11, they were in their 50s. 
And I became uh, good friends with Fred, the owner. And he would, we would go for night walks around Balboa Island and he would show me how to look for dolphins in the dark. And he would show me what red lip scallops look like when you shine a flashlight on the pylons of the decks because their lips would be open. And he would show me what lobster look like when they scuttle in the shallow waters around our docks and our boats. It was wonderful. It was absolutely fabulous. But it was, we wound up after three years of living on the island, moving quote inland, all of about 300 feet inland. And um, my parents had a, had a housewarming party. And of course, Fred and his wife came and I, and us three kids were there helping mom serve dishes and, you know, bus tape, bus plates and things. And I was in the kitchen, which was closed off from the other living room and dining room. And Fred touched me. And he touched me in a way a 14, 13, 14 year old should not be touched. And he, I remember he went like this, he put his finger, this is age old, what molesters do. If you ever wanna know anything about sex, Robin, you just ask me. Me and the boys have been taking classes at UCI and we'll teach you anything. But don't tell your parents, it'll be our secret. And I felt my insides drop to my feet. And I felt hollow inside and my ears were ringing and my eyes were wet and I wasn't sure I could see anything. And I said, no, Fred, no, don't, don't, don't. And it was the shock of this man who had been my friend touching me in ways that I knew were not right. And I went to my mom and I, of course, we never approached anything directly because that would indicate there was a problem. So I hissed at her underneath my breath and I said, stick with me, no matter what you do, don't let me out of your sight. And she said, okay, and she did. And the minute they were gone, the minute everyone said goodbye, and of course, Fred and his wife were totally drunk. Well, I didn't know that. I was 13. I didn't know that. They, they slammed the door shut, turned on me, and said, what happened? And I told them. And to me, that was a lot. To me, that was pretty traumatic. It was their responses where I felt the abandonment. They said, oh, is that all? What, that's not enough? Is that all? Dad turned to go out to the sidewalk to confront him. And mom said, no, no, Kent. I don't want you to go out there. We're, this, we're new in this neighborhood. I don't want people to think that we are white trash. Leave it alone. So, of course, this little kid, you remember, we're getting messages right and left. I got the message. Your feelings aren't valid. You're not worth fighting for. And you're unlovable. So I grew up with that as a teenager. I grew up with that, those three messages. And um, <clears throat> so I, it, it didn't break me. What almost broke me was a year later when they had been avoiding Fred and his wife. That's what my parents do if there's an unpleasant thing happening. They avoid. 
They leave the room, they leave the house, and I learned how to do that. If relationships went bad, if relations, not even bad, if relationships or a job had a hiccup, I would leave because that's what we did in our family. We would avoid and leave. So, um, of course, throughout my young life, I discovered alcohol and I discovered how much it assisted me. And I discovered how much it uh, assisted with broken feelings. And I drank for about 12 years alcoholically until I was three weeks before my 30th birthday. And um, I found myself in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and that's when the uh, healing began. Um, where am I at on time, can I ask? Um, yes, you have um, five minutes till 30 minutes will be done. Okay, okay we're good, we are good. All right. Um, so the healing began at age 30. I had not married. <clears throat> I had not had kids. I had picked up a couple of vices along the way. Cocaine was a big one. Alcohol was another one. Nicotine. And of course, my dear friend, along the whole way since the age of four, sugar. It all is a bit one big anesthetic, anesthesia for me. So at the age of 30, I began the process of shedding those vices. Uh, actually, cocaine went first. Um, I just got scared. Oh, no, I didn't get scared. I was cheap. Cocaine was $100 a gram. I didn't have that kind of money, so I dropped that stuck with alcohol and alcohol then went and uh, not because I wanted to, but because the California highway patrol started having a problem with me and my drinking and driving. Um, so when I walked into AA, uh, the shedding of those vices began and um, come October 8th, if uh, God willing and the creek don't rise, I'll celebrate 37 years of sobriety. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a drug. Um, at, four, at four years sober in 1988, I'm 34 now. And I have a year of therapy under my belt. And I realized that as much as I wanted to be married all my life, I just wanted someone to love me and marry me. I was doing things and acting like I didn't want it, as my therapist had pointed out. So one of the things that I needed to do was to have a serious talk, serious family talk with mom and dad about the childhood issue we never talked about, the molestation. So between my therapist and I, she armed me with the right language. And that's so much of what we learn in ACA. We learn more about the right language. The language that heals us, the language that hurts us, how to let that hurting language go. And so this was my first introduction 
to the right language. And I don't even want to say I confronted mom and dad. I just said, hey, mom and dad, can we talk about something that happened as a kid? Because I'm still carrying it around as a kid and I'm an adult now. And I want to, I, I want to relate to it as an adult would. So I need to hear your side as adults of the same story. So I get a different perspective. And so they did not feel like I was cornering them or attacking them. They felt like I was sharing. And so they shared with me, but God loved my parents and I do love them dearly. They've both since passed away and we, have, we were on tremendously great terms. And I love my parents a lot and I probably love them more since I found ACA, because I've learned how to love them even more than I loved them when they were alive. Boy, I don't know where that emotion came from. That's a gift and that's a promise of ACA. Anyway, at the time, mom and dad, God bless themselves, God bless their souls. They couldn't admit that we, our family was anything less than perfect because if they did, they would have to either apologize and say I was right or both. And so I heard words like, Robin, I'm not sure you're remembering that correctly. Or since they were the parent and I was the child, even at age 34, I'm still their child. What they said was, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do. The closest I got was from dad. He said, you know, Rob, I was never very good at confronting either. I just wasn't good at it. My dad didn't teach me how to confront. And my mom, of course, turned it around and talked about her. She said, yes, Robin, I had tough teenage years too. Gosh, but you just got to learn to move past it, honey. So I didn't get the response I was looking for. And I'd had enough therapy and enough AA to know that you know, if you go into these kinds of conversations with an expectation, you're going to walk out with a resentment. So I didn't have an expectation. I just wanted to talk about it. But, you know, later on, after I told dad the messages that I took from when he wouldn't go and, quote, defend me, dad looked me in the eyes and he said, Robbie Dobbs, that's his uh, nickname for me. He said, I want you to know you are worth fighting for. You are lovable and your feelings do count. Now, what's interesting is I was 34 and I was becoming convinced I might never marry. After dad telling me those things, something shifted inside of me. Four months later, I met the man that I'm still married to today. Gosh, 30, 33 years later. I don't know how these things work. I know there's a higher power involved. I know there's healing involved. I know there's a lot of love involved. But today, having said all of this, ACA has shown me how to forgive my parents and how to understand that this is a disease that is handed down from generation to generation. Like I said before, my mother's perfectionism and narcissism came from her mother who was a total bear. My father was so laid back. If he was any more laid back, he'd be comatose. 
And he was laid back because his father was. My brother was a total submissive because of my father. And guess what? I married a submissive, amiable man. This is generational people. This goes on and on and on through the generations unless we find something like ACA and stop that. Now that I know that though, I have the freedom to remember the times they did express their love for me. It wasn't until I wrote my inventory on that that my dad's words came back to me. Robbie Dobbs, I want you to know you are lovable. You are worth fighting for and your feelings do count. Now that's not saying I have a perfect life or that I work a perfect program today. I have noticed through working with my sponsor, through working the steps, through writing, that I have a notion of keeping myself stuck. I have put down the booze, put down the drugs. Ooh, I put down the cigarettes 20 years ago. But I still fight with my original demon sugar. I live with the fact that I have 20 to 25 pounds around me. It feels like a wall that protects me and separates me from the world. And I sabotage myself to keep me stuck, to keep me in a place a teensy bit remote from the world. Remember, my parents always kind of acted like they would rather have been somewhere else. That has been inherited by me and I tend to keep the world just a little bit remote. And how I do that, how I keep the hurt and the pain away is to have this wall. Oh, I know the reason why you didn't ask me out to let you in was because I'm a little overweight. Oh, I know the reason why uh, you haven't returned my phone call is whatever. It's how I protect myself. And ACA has shown me that. I'm working with the help of this program to let go of those sabotage issues. Oh, Reparenting myself. It's another issue we are all working on. It's an issue I'm working on with the help of my sponsor and my ACA sisters. It's, it's one of the hardest things for me to do because I heard so much of the critical parent coming from my mother and it's in my mother's voice. I'm learning more in ACA how to be gentle with myself, to become and be with myself and to compliment myself. And I had to learn that being gentle with myself doesn't mean I get to lay on the couch all day and not do anything. I'm being gentle. It means I have to get out there and I have to take the risks. But I accept the results as to what my higher power wants for me. I'm not responsible for the results. I don't talk to myself the way I used to. If someone talked to my stepdaughter, I married a man who had two kids. If someone had talked to my stepdaughter the way I talked to myself, I'd deck them. I wouldn't let them talk to my stepdaughter that way. Why, why, what makes me think I can talk to myself that way? So I only try to talk to myself today the way I talk to my stepdaughter. 
I'm going to read something from the laundry list workbook. It's trait three. And when I read this, I thought someone had gotten into my brain and took everything out and put it in black and white words on the page. And this goes on today still for me. And it's something I am trying to find out how to lessen. Because this is a biggie. Alco Here it is. Alcoholism and addiction are very angry and destructive solutions to a spiritual dilemma. The families we grew up with were usually loaded with hostility, both spoken and unspoken. And out of sheer necessity, we dosed ourselves. Notice that word. Dosed ourselves with the inside drugs of worry, which produces cortisol, fear, which produces adrenaline, and pain, which produces melatonin, to numb ourselves of our feelings. And I do this today. I have done this the moment I took alcohol, drugs, and nicotine out of my life. I never stopped living under the influence of drugs. They're just now from my internal drugstore. Even though I am retired and I owe no one nothing, nothing. I don't have to be anywhere except when I make commitments like this. Yes, I had to be here at six o'clock tonight. But otherwise, I don't have to get up and go to work. I don't have to do anything. But yet I will still put myself in situations of excitement and fear. And then I get to feel the adrenaline. What does that look like? Okay, subconsciously not leaving enough time to get to the airport. So I'm driving to the airport to pick up someone and I'm rushing, rushing, rushing because I might be late and I might miss them. But if I stopped earlier and did the things I needed to do so that I would leave in a timely manner to get to the airport, I would not feel that excitement and fear or that cortisol or that adrenaline. But yet I do. I set up my own situations for that. I put my situation, I put myself in situations where I say these words to myself. You should be doing this rather than what you really want to do. So I get to dose myself with melatonin to numb myself to my own life. I often find myself feeling a little sleepy rather than participating in that which I really want to do. So I nap the afternoon away. I'm beginning to see the patterns and the excitement that both sets up and anesthetizes. And these are the things I'm discovering in ACA. And this is advanced hard work for me. This is where I've learned how I've been dosing myself all my life, why I do that, who I'm hurting, and how to stop. How to get kinder with myself as I discover these things. That's what I was talking about earlier. And how to get just a little more comfortable with the notion of living in peace. And um, I'm probably going to close now. I'd like to read something I saw online. And it is from the language of letting go. And it is titled Peace. Anxiety is often our first reaction to conflict, problems, and even our own fears. In those moments, detaching and getting peaceful may seem disloyal or apathetic. We think if I really care, I'll worry. If this is really important to me, I must stay upset. 
We convince ourselves that outcomes will be positively affected by the amount of time we spend worrying. And our best problem solving resource is peace. Solutions arise easily and naturally out of a peaceful state. Often fear and anxiety block solutions. Anxiety gives power to the problem, not the solution. It does not help to harbor turmoil. It does not help. Peace is available if we choose it. In spite of chaos and unsolved problems around us, all is well. Things will work out. We can surround ourselves with the resources of the universe, water, earth, a sunset, a walk, a prayer, a friend. We can relax and let ourselves feel peace. And then there's a prayer at the end. Today, I will let go of my need to stay in turmoil. I will cultivate peace and trust that timely solutions and goodness will arise naturally and harmoniously out of the wellspring of peace. I will consciously let go and let God. I don't know what my time is about, but I want to thank you for asking me here tonight, and I wish you all the gift of peace. Thank you.